Today we have Mr. Don Erler coming in to join us on the podcast. Don is a force to be reckoned with here in commercial real estate in Louisville. Been around a long time. Don has mentored lots of the people that you see moving and shaking here in the city now. And just a wealth of knowledge and information and all around good guy. I've uh, been blessed to be able to sit down with them and just learn and ask good questions. And so that's what we're going to do here today. And yeah, Don, so just if you want to kind of start off telling us a little bit of your background and uh, what you were doing before real estate and just kind of fill us in. Sure. I'm blessed to be in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I've been here 55 years full time. I came from college in 1968. I've had five wonderful careers in this town. It's a great place to live and it's got great people and just a just an easy place to reside. So I came from college, went to Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, graduated in 1968, had a job offer from a CPA firm here in Louisville, came to Louisville for that job offer. Let's see, so you all have a, a good understanding of what uh, money was in 1968. Uh, they paid me $840 a month, whether, whether I needed it or not, and uh, delighted to do it. And that was back when uh, you had to to practice for two years in a CPA firm before you could sit for the exam. So by the time I had finished two years in a CPA firm, I was 100% convinced I didn't want to be a CPA. So that was easy. Moved out of that area. But I I love the accounting area. Numbers were very comfortable for me. So I did some private accounting with some companies here in Louisville and ended up with Jefferson County government. In 1972, we had some young Turks that got elected, and I was a youngster back then, so ended up being the budget director for Jefferson County from 1972 through 74. And then in 74, was thinking I really needed some additional education and some additional certificates, some, some numbers and letters behind my name to create some credibility. Considered getting an MBA, but my brother was a lawyer up in Maine, and I loved the law. I talked a lot of law with him over the years, and so I decided to go to law school. So I went to law school at night to start with and then made some arrangements so I could go to classes during the day and graduated from law school in 1976. At that point, I had actually moved from the budget office in Jefferson County government. I went to work for Bruce Miller, who was the county attorney. In 1974, Kentucky moved from county courts to state courts, And the county attorney's office moved from a staff of 25 to 125, so they really needed somebody to administer that office, and that's the position that I took over. You were allowed to practice law in in being in that office as long as it wasn't criminal, and so I set up a little law firm with a friend of mine, and we encouraged some others to come in, so we had a little law firm from 1976 through 80 called Hogan Earler. Bill Hogue is a divorce attorney now, still here in in Louisville. And then I set off on my own in 80 and worked, was in a private office from 80 through 83. The most unhappy profession that I've ever seen. Nobody was ever happy. Nobody wants to pay an attorney. So uh, at that point, I loved the law, but I didn't really like the practice. Went to work for one of my clients who was in the hardware and software development business. This was before personal computers existed. I know that you all can't imagine that with all the electronics and technological advances that we've had over the years. We were selling many computers about the size of the table that I'm sitting in front of today. (laughs) They had a huge storage device on the top that held 10 megabytes of information. And the fellow that I was working for was writing code for database tracking. We actually sold these systems to small colleges and nonprofits. around the country, and they used it for database tracking of their donors. So, I mean, this is back in the dark ages of technology, <laughs> probably before you guys were born, I don't know. But that was, a great, that was a great ride, and one of the reasons it was a great ride is that I learned how to fly in the early 80s, and the fellow I worked for was an avid pilot. And so we flew everything within 500 miles of Louisville, uh, put about 500 tack hours on all the airplanes that we could lay our hands on, and uh, just had a had a wonderful time flying as well as selling these uh, systems. And in 1987, during those four years, I was out about 125 nights a year. Got kind of old. That was a lot of road travel, a lot of of road dust. 
And for some reason, I was reading the one ads in the Courier Journal on a Sunday in 1987, and there was a little one-by-one ad. The one-by-one ad is one column wide and one inch deep. And that ad, I'll never forget it, it said, looking for an individual with expensive tastes and a sense of humor, call Harold Helm at a telephone number. And I happened to know Harold Helm because I had worked for his brother in county government back in the early 70s. So I called Harold up and I said, okay, what are you doing? And he said, well, we're in the real estate auction business and we get hired and we're employed and we sell it. And in auctions, you sell them non-contingent and they close in 30 days. And they said when they finished one of those assignments, all of a sudden they were unemployed and they had to go find another job. So they were looking for an individual that would book business while they were executing it. And Harold said that he ran that ad one time. This is how, this is how precious and uncertain life can be. He ran that ad one time. If I had never seen that ad, who knows where I would have gone, where I would be today. But I saw that ad, and I called him up, and he said he he had 40 telephone calls. They interviewed 20 people. He said, send me a resume. didn't even have a resume back then, so I put one together, sent it over to him, and they interviewed me and called me back and said, you're the most unqualified person that we've uh, talked to. You have no licenses, no background, no knowledge about what we're doing, but you have the right personality for this particular activity. So we made a deal. I took the crash Weichel course in February of 1987, sat for the real estate exam in March, sat for the auction exam in April, knew a lot of people. So it was a, and and sales was comfortable for me. I'm a, I'm an outgoing guy and like to talk to people and like to, like to look at opportunities. So it was, a, it was a good fit for me and a good fit for them. And so I, I worked with them about two and a half years. And I was booking more business than they were at the end of two and a half years. And I was enjoying what I was doing. I had gone, actually gone to auction school as well to learn how to call the chant because that was fascinating to me. So I went to North Carolina for a couple of weeks to do that. And so I had lunch with them two and a half years in. And I said, I love it. This is a great way to make a living. I'm ready to be your partner. And they looked at me and said, we weren't looking for a partner. And so I said, okay, I get that. So I packed up my bags, went out and set up my shop in a Century 21 office out in my hometown in LaGrange. Did that for a couple of years and then was solicited by three guys that were in the commercial real estate business. They were setting up a Remax commercial office in November of 1992. And they were looking for somebody that had a that was in about 10 different persuasions, commercial leasing, industrial leasing, industrial sales, you know, all the different genres in, in commercial real estate. And they wanted a real estate auctioneer. And so I looked at it. It was a great opportunity. That was back when the REMAX commercial layout or, or agreement was 100%. You just basically paid your desk fees and some, some annual costs and things like that. So I was able to, to take home all I made. I really was self-employed and continued in that in that basis. And I stayed with that particular group. Two of the partners have died since then. One continued on, stayed with him for 23 years. We changed Remax Commercial into Sperry Vaness in 2002 because it had a much better commercial real estate national footprint. Um, we had to pay royalties, and I had a lot of pushback from my from my associates in that office, but I said, believe me, I think we can make a lot more money. And we did the First year we were in 2005, I think all of us doubled our income. So that was a that was a good move, and I did that until late 2015. Got a little older, decided that probably was time to move on. Packed up, took my computers, my computer, and all my technology home. Everything at that point had become transparent. Changed my commute from 30 miles to 30 feet. And continued to do a few things on my own at that point. I enjoyed that. And I've slowed down over the years, but I continue to dabble my Kentucky and Indiana, both my real estate brokers and my auction licenses are current. So I keep that and help out other brokers on more complex activities these days. Also dabbled in, in the hemp world. Hemp came to Kentucky in 2014. One of the clients that, that I had at that time, I had served for probably 35 years, decided he would get in the extraction business. And so they set up an extraction operation. It grew and grew and grew. And all of a sudden, it was a 100,000 square feet um, processing facility. And he called me up in 2018 and said, we'd love to hire you and your wife as to provide a sales platform for us because we really can't get out, go to the trade shows and do the things we want. And I said, no. 
And he called me back and I said, no. And he called me back and I said, no. And he was persistent. And so Peggy and I took a hard look at it. And it was kind of interesting because uh, we were traveling already. My wife told me that she wasn't going to push my wheelchair, so we better travel now. And uh, so we were doing a lot of traveling. And so what it did is it opened up an opportunity for us to travel on their behalf, on their nickel. Also, it looked like it was short term. I didn't need another 20-year career. I think I was 20-something at that point. And so you know, it looked like a short term, maybe two to five years, ended up being 18 months, believe it or not. So we had an opportunity to travel, to get out and about, learn something new. It's always fun. I, I have a mantra, and that is every day is a school day. So if you're not learning something new today, you, you need to open your eyes up. So it gave us an opportunity to learn a lot of new things, meet a lot of new people. And it looked like it had a few bucks attached to it. So we started selling crude extractor in September of 2018 was selling for $2,200 a kilo, and then the market crashed. They told everybody that CBD was a gold rush. Everybody grew it in their backyard, grew the hemp in their backyard, and they grew six in 2019. They grew six times as much as anybody could ever consume, and the market just absolutely crashed. So we watched that happen. The prices went down about 95%. We held on until COVID hit, and then everything stopped. So that was the end of it, about 18 months after we started, but it was a it was a good ride, and I continue to dabble in commercial real estate today, especially on complex deals. I like to work on land development deals and things like that that need a lot of entitlements. know a lot of people in, in both sides of the river here that, that can help us get to the goal line on some of those projects. So that's where we are. I'm here today. I'm 77. Uh, have a big smile on my face. Uh, every day is a blessing. I love it. That that was that's a great history with a lot of different jumps. And I think when you when you think of, you know, really our age, when you're in your 20s, you you often hop into a career and you're kind of stuck doing that the rest of your life. And the longer you go on, the harder it is to just jump into something new. And you were able to, in many points in your career, jump to something new. How do you think about those jumps differently? Why do you think you're comfortable doing that? Well, I mean, I, I think you, I think as you grow older and mature and, and see what the world's all about, you see the, what the opportunities are, you really better understand what, what makes you happy. Why do you get up in the morning and take a shower and, and put on your, your suit or your jeans or whatever, whatever you're going to wear and, and, and be motivated to go out and do things? So I think you, I think you get a better perspective about that. I mean, I went to work for Mick Coleman in that in that software and hardware development company in 1983, and I'd I'd been doing some legal work for him, but the reason it was so enticing was the was the opportunity to fly on the on the business nickel. It's expensive to fly, so you don't don't go bore holes in the sky. So we had uh, an opportunity to to fly a lot of different airplanes and see a lot of different places and. And I could tell you some horroring stories about flying. We had we had a few that were pretty interesting, but I'm still here, so that's a, that's a good thing. Were, so. Are you a pilot yourself? I am a pilot. Okay, awesome. I'm a pilot. Yeah, I took pilot training in 1981, 1982. I just wanted to fly, so I went to Bowman Field. I actually owned a Cessna 172 at one point with a partner, and and at its it I was with my instructor coming making an approach into Bowman Field and in 1981 or 82 and when my plane swallowed a valve guide it's a very bad incidence into a into a lycoming engine and but fortunately the propeller continued to turn all the way to the runway we rolled out and the plane stopped and never started again so fortunately we weren't airborne when it finally quit so we've we've had a lot of there's a lot of things they they all say there's there's bold pilots and old pilots but there's no bold old pilots so <laughs> it's a, it's a it's an activity you have to uh, take take carefully what uh, makes a good pilot you know what what kind of skills or qualities make someone that uh, just a great pilot well you know i i think i think you have to understand where you're going uh, back in the days that i was flying we were flying from via VORs to VORs, there weren't any GPSs. I mean, we all jump in the car now, and we take our cell phone out, and we put the destination, and it tells us exactly where to go. That didn't exist back then. You basically were flying from point to point. Uh, You were using the VORs, which were uh, radar signals coming off the ground. But you also had to be able to, to do what we call dead reckoning, and that is you had to be able to know where you're going by looking out the window and looking at the ground and understanding where you're going. You have to know whether or not you're going north, south, east, or west and, and, and what, 
what tangent you were going at. I got lost a couple of times when I was learning. But, yeah, I mean, you have to have a sense of, of where you're going. And when you're in the air, I, I'd say your, your head's a lot lighter. You really have to think through what you're doing and do it carefully. You have to know what the stall speeds are when you're landing because you don't want to land before you get over the runway. So you just have to learn a few things. But I, th- I think I had the, the qualities to learn. I did the groundwork and the, and the work in the air. And uh, just it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting activity. That's awesome. Um, and the qualities of thinking on your feet, being a continuous learner, obviously translate to the real estate world. Um, I'm curious, with your experience seeing the different markets over the years, back when interest rates were you know, really high in the 80s, how you see today's market? Well, of course, I came into the, to the real estate business as an auctioneer. So that's a different perspective than being a commercial broker or something like that. It really sort of changes your perspective. But in that, in that time that I've been in, I started in 87. So I saw the RTC days in the, in the 89 through 92 period. That was a fascinating period when all the savings and loans went, went belly up. Um, but uh, auctioneers love distress. They love bad times. Uh, it's a great opportunity. Of course, people ought to have a lot of cash in their pocket when things go down because that's when you ought to be buying, not when it's hot. So I watched that. I watched the dot-com crash in the early, late 90s, early 2000s. I watched the 2008 downturn. Um, you know, we've had a, a number of different incidents. But from the auction perspective, it was, it was a great opportunity to do things because auction works whether times are good or times are bad. But when they're bad, you really can make hay. I developed a program after 2008 called voluntary foreclosures because what happened in 2008 that was the real estate crisis of course and uh, many many people were upside down including me I had a little portfolio of my own that I had to go resolve but a lot of people were up upside down and you know the old theory is that you know you don't pay your mortgage you go in default the bank sues you they get a judgment against you they 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 evict the, the owner or the tenant or whatever it is. They take the property back, they maintain it, and then they, they resell it. And all of a sudden, there was so much inventory and a lot of marginal inventory out there that they didn't really want to do that anymore. Um, we sold a lot, a lot of properties west of 12th Street in the, in the areas of, of the inner city. Unfortunately, in this town, in the mid-60s, when they brought busing into Louisville, we had a lot of upper income and white flight into the neighboring counties, and we left all the all the black people and the brown people and the poor people in the city. So we had some some difficult neighborhoods and, and tough times. And of course, when you have a severe downturn, they're the first ones that suffer. And the last things the banks wanted to do is take over all those properties when they get. REO properties on their asset sheet. They have to take care of them. The city's all over them for cutting their grass and paying the taxes and maintaining the properties, and they got vandalized. So we went to the, I went to the banks, about a dozen, mostly, mostly small ones, but a few of the larger ones. Did some work for Fifth Third Bank out of, out of Cincinnati back in that time. And so what we did is we convinced the banks that their borrowers were probably judgment-proof. They probably didn't have anything to go after. So even if they got a judgment, sold the property, still had a uh, deficiency in the mortgage, you know, they would go after those people. They didn't have anything to go after. So so we convinced them that that they really were better off if we could directly sell those properties to the future owners, whether they be homeowners or investors or otherwise. And so we said, why don't you release the lien, let the, the borrower off the hook, if they agree to allow the property to sell at absolute auction and you, Mr. Banker, not being entitled, you have the right to bid and protect should you want, just the same way they would in a master commissioner sale or something like that. So they said, boy, that's a great idea. We, we were a little nervous about it because we were going to get paid a, a 10% buyer's premium if we sold it to somebody else, but we cut them a deal with, you know, two or 3%. I forget what the numbers were, but a small percentage if they bought them back. But we ended up in 2010, we sold a thousand properties for the banks, subdivision, 
failures up in Ohio, empty office buildings, empty shopping centers, you name it. And 95% of what we put across the block went to third parties, did not go back to the banks. I ran into one loan officer who was convinced that he was smarter than everybody else. We sold some land in the snow under a tent down just north of Richmond, Kentucky. And he came down there and bid them all in. And I think they had them for like 10 years before they ever found somebody to buy them. So he wasn't as smart as he really thought he was. But we we moved an awful lot of real estate using voluntary foreclosures as opposed to them doing judicial foreclosures, which didn't make sense in that environment. So that was the biggest year I ever had in the auction business, 2010. So auctioneers love downturns. That's genius. Uh, My mom, she's been in the residential real estate game for a while. She's a little younger, but during 2008, 2010, she was focused on short sales and she still today claims that was her rise was actually during the recession. I know her and I know what she did. So yeah, she did well. Yeah. So do you see similarities in today's market that preceded that environment of 07, 08? A little bit. I mean, we're seeing some pressure on the economy because of the interest rates. I mean, that's been the that's been the biggest problem. There's a tremendous amount of investment funds in the world, in the country. There's a lot of people with a lot of money. So if the if you can make deals right, there's plenty of people out there to buy them. The other thing that's important in in commercial real estate, investment real estate is creativity. I just just got done attending the the SEC conference here in Louisville, the Society of Exchange Counselors, and just got back. You guys were there as well this morning. I got back from Cree, the Kentucky Real Estate Exchangers, and what I call those organizations is creative real estate. It's so much different than standard brokerage because people are looking for ways to get to the finish line, not just somebody that's got cash in hand, but somebody that has equity. You can buy things with the equity you already have in a property. You can you can create a note against that equity and use it to buy something else. You can do all kinds of interesting things to, to accomplish that. But again, it, it really needs to be a, a favorable environment. I still think the environment's pretty hot, but I guess what we ought to be doing is buying office buildings in, in the CBD of Louisville right now, which are about 25% vacant. But what are we going to do with them? Maybe we turn them into nice multifamily properties or homeless shelters or something. Who knows? But there's always opportunities in the in the marketplace if, if you look for them. Oh, that's awesome. And I love that you touched on the creative piece of real estate. Um, I'm curious if you could provide any examples, any deals that come to mind specifically when you were like, wow, this was pretty cool? Well, you know, a lot of the, these these fellas, especially the SEC members, which are national and probably the the top of the rung in exchanging and doing creative real estate are the, are the best examples. But there's a guy out of Colorado Springs. His name is Blake Allen. And we all shake our heads when he proposes something because he is very creative. I mean, he'll go he goes anything, anytime he's got any equity in any properties, he creates paper against it or paper to be created because he's always looking for the next deal. So if he has equity out there, he creates paper against the equity and then uses it as a, as a purchase chip to go out and buy something else. The other thing he does is I had a, I had a 1031 client looking for a placement of about a half a million dollars. And he said, oh, that's really easy. I'll take all your money today. I'm going to use it to go buy single family, duplexes, small small apartment properties, things of that nature. And I'm going to master lease them back so that your clients who are not real estate experts or, or property managers, I'm going to master lease it back. I'll take care of it. I'm going to pay you 6%. And I'm going to give you 2% appreciation a year for, for every year you're in. And if you want to get out, I'll buy them back. So, I mean, you know, that's just using available funds where you have to buy real estate in order to satisfy a 1031 tax-deferred exchange to, to place that money and, and, and make it productive and make it safe and make it operate without anybody else's expertise, using his expertise. So, I mean, there's a... There's a million ways to skin the cat, and uh, this group is very interesting. Uh, I had somebody ask me, why, why do you go over there? You don't have anything to sell today or, and, uh, because I, I just learn something new every time I uh, rub up against the, that kind of group. And uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by this conversation and maybe going down the weeds here, but 
um, you know, we talk a lot about notes and seller financing and, and kind of how to get creative in real estate. Could you just share the fundamentals of when you say note? Like, what does that mean? Um, how do you create paper against equity in layman's terms? Well, very simple. And that is, you know, I've got a, I've got, if I have a half a million dollar property and I owe 250 on it, I, I have $250,000 worth of equity. I can't do anything with that equity. I can't spend it. I could trade that property into something else uh, and somebody would be getting my $250,000 worth of equity as, as part of it. But I don't necessarily want to sell the property. I really like that property. It's performed well, done well, and so I want to activate my equity. So what I do is I just create a note against that equity. It's secured by the equity in that property. That's the security. And then I take that note and I give it to you as a down payment on what you have to sell. Maybe you carry it back or we go get a bank or I go get a bank loan to, to cover the balance. Owner carry right now is very important because uh, a lot of people have 3 and 4% mortgages. And when you go out and get one now, it's going to be 7 or 8 So it changes the dynamics of the transaction. But, but to activate that equity, and you activate it by just creating a note against it. And I offer you the note. The note has terms. It pays you. It's secured by my equity in that other property. So you're, you're not at risk. And, and we activate that equity to go to pyramid up to buy the next deal. So that's, that's what they do. And I know, I know Sam went to the education this weekend. It was called Broker Estate Building. And it, what it was all about was how real estate brokers, when they pay attention, can get wealthy in this business, not by cashing commission checks, but investing in these properties uh, and, and doing these uh, creative tricks in order to build their portfolio and have uh, real estate in the future. I mean, be great to have, uh, it's, it's great to have 25 rental properties, but it would be great to have 25 rental properties that were free and clear. That uh, changes the dynamic a little bit. So that's, uh, that's some, of, some of that. That's, that's interesting. And I, I love the idea of getting creative in real estate. And I feel like sometimes, the, you know, you have a lot of property owners that aren't necessarily sophisticated like a broker should be or a, you know, a serial investor. How do you go about explaining or, or at least convincing? Because a lot of times, especially with, you know, older folks who've just owned this property for their whole life, you know, they're coming to the point where they want to sell it. They know the price they want, but then you bring up seller financing and they have no idea what that means or, or how that can be beneficial to them. What are some of the benefits of seller financing for some of our listeners who may not know what that is? Well, it's a full-time job teaching people who are not sophisticated. Uh, no question. I mean, we're in the education business. We're in the business of, uh, of, uh, making people feel comfortable with the process. And owner financing is real simple. If you say somebody's got a commercial property, again, it's worth a half a million dollars. Let's say it's free and clear. They don't owe a nickel on it. They've owned it for 30 years. They've paid off the mortgage. They've been collecting that, that money. But they have a half a million dollar asset. If they, if they sell the property, they're going to have a huge capital gain. They probably bought it 30 years ago for twenty-five dollars or $50,000. So they have a huge capital gain that they have to pay the tax on. But one of the ways, you know, there's a number of different ways to defer the tax or to, or to spread the tax out. But one of the, the simple ways for somebody, they've been collecting rents off that property for years. They like the property. You know, why wouldn't they carry the financing and get paid every month to be the bank instead of being the landlord? And I, I've, I've mentored a number of different people I've got two people that came to me and said, hey, will you give me some guidance and some mentorship? One person is 52. The other person is in their early 60s. One of the things that, that I've been able to do with a number of different people who have accumulated properties over the year, uh, years uh, and are doing very, very well, but they are landlords. They're managers of real estate. And uh, after a while, that, that activity gets old. And I said, you know, the people who will take the best care of your properties are people that own your properties. And I said, why don't you take a look at, at changing from being a landlord with tenants to being a bank with owners? Mm. Find good tenants who would like to own their own property. 
figure out how to make a deal with them, put them in there. Those people will take great care of those properties and then carry that paper back rather than getting rather than getting rent payments, get mortgage payments. And that will make your portfolio much more stable and much, much better in the in the years to come. I mean, I talked to somebody yesterday. I said, said, you know, what how, how are you doing in the in the real estate business? They said, Oh, we have I have sixty two rental properties. Well, I'd have to I'd have to put a gun up to my head to own sixty two rental properties. And and by the way, and we're managing them. And I said, well, why don't, you, why don't you consider selling those to your best tenants and carrying the paper back? Because they're, they're going to plant flowers, and they're going to take care of it, and they're going to fix the toilets when they're broken rather than use. So that's a way to move from being owner and a landlord into being a bank and, and carrying the money. Now, there are some restrictions. I won't get into the legalities of selling on owner finance because you get into dealing into the dealerships and things like that, but there's certainly some opportunities to better your portfolio that way. Yes. I, the, it's wild. Just as a real estate professional, you'll be going through social media and there's some, you know, the new guru who's telling everyone, oh yeah, buy a single family house. You can manage it yourself. And they're never talking about that as a lifestyle, managing your yeah. own property. Yeah. When the, when the phone rings at three o'clock in the morning and the, and the, and the toilet's clogged up, the they have a child who's throwing a toy down the toilet or something like that. You know, that's a real headache. I wouldn't ever want to do that. The other thing on owner financing is, and we learn this in exchanging, and that is what you need to ask those people that are selling is when you sell, what are you going to do with your money? Because if you have some idea what they're going to do with their money, a lot of times they're better off having a lien on the property they've just sold. They like the property. They've had it for a long time. Why not hold paper on that property and get paid for that as opposed to having to go look for something else? They always say it's a lot less expensive to keep a tenant than it is to get a new one. Mm -hmm. And so it's the same deal. It's a lot of, it's a lot easier to, to stay in the property that you're familiar with, that you understand, that you're comfortable with, rather than trying to go look for another one that you're not uh, knowledgeable about. So uh, that's the opportunity I think you have to explain to them. And, and today, owner financing is magic because the bank rates are really high. Mm -hmm. It's expensive. Single Everybody's family. asking yeah, for it. Everybody. So, I mean, if you, get a, if you save a point, instead of paying 75 for the mortgage, you pay 65 on the on the owner finance piece. That's money you save, and that's money that they're making. And they can't take that money. They're going to have to pay taxes on it, number one. Uh, so they're going to have less, but, but that's a good way for them to reemploy their funds. Yes. I, I, you mentioned you like creative deals. I'm curious in terms of just property types and stuff, what gets you excited for a real estate investment? Or even if you're not part going to be an owner or a seller of the deal, what, do you, what makes you excited about a deal outside of its creativity? Well, you know, the, the deals are, there's a deal on every property. You just have to, you just really have to look for it. Uh, you see people in this marketplace in, in our MSA, the hottest, the hottest commodity is industrial. It's gone crazy. We have about 80, I think we have about 85 million square feet of industrial uh, logistics, mostly in this, in this MSA and in our, in our area, they're building about five and a half million square feet a year spec. They can't build it fast enough. The uh, vacancy rate is like 2%. So you know, believe it or not, there's people out there that are building these buildings. I have a client that's building about a million square feet right now. He's building the million square feet for probably $80, $85 a square foot. Nice concrete tilled up buildings, 125,000 to 500,000 square feet each. I mean, they're just monster properties. But as soon as he finishes them, uh, and fills them up with solid tenants, and there's good national tenants that are taking space in our marketplace right here, those buildings all of a sudden are worth about $140 a square foot. So that's not necessarily creative, but you can see how strong that leverage is if you, if you get involved in that. But there's, again, you know, you can, you can activate equity in your portfolio. You can do a lot of owner finance, a lot of paper a lot of exchanging. Somebody who who stands up. Somebody stood up at the SEC meeting the other day and said, "You know, I've got a property and it's free and clear." Of course, everybody's ears just perk up when you say that because they say, "Ooh, he he's not a seller; he's a buyer." Mm -hmm. 
So the first thing they ask him is, okay, what will you take for your property? You know, what are you looking for? Why don't you use it as a down payment or as a bargaining chip to, to get to where you want to get to? So you got to think outside the box. I mean, there's so many people in this country, we buy and sell real estate, and it's most of it's just standard. You know, you make an offer, you go to the bank, you borrow the money, you make the down payment. But there's a lot of people that can't even afford the down payments these days. That's why there's a lot of opportunities to convert tenants to owners. They can't afford the down payment because of the, the terms have changed so much in that. So you gotta got to get outside the box and, and make things work for you. And you talk a lot about getting creative sometimes and just as a young commercial real estate agent, you know, when it comes to, let's say one owner is willing to trade his property for another, where does your commission come in? Well, you got to find it there somewhere, but you know, a a lot of people, we had, we had a gentleman come to our exchange meeting this morning and, and talk about having a partner in Texas and, and he could have collected a lot of commissions on a lot of deals that they did down there. But uh, instead of collecting commissions, he took a little piece of the deal. And after about 12 or 15 years of doing that, and he probably made a few dollars along the side, a few, few outside commissions from third parties and things like that. But they ended up selling one of those properties, and, and they literally had to fly to Texas to sit down with them so he didn't fall out of his chair when they told him how big his share was going to be. So Sorry. that's a great way to accumulate wealth by, by just taking a piece. A lot of people that understand investment real estate don't collect their commissions. They put them right back into the deal. Exactly. Just roll them back because, you know, if it's a good deal, it's going to get better as time goes on. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that's become a lot more popular, especially nowadays to roll that commission into a deal. Do you have any examples where you've maybe done that to where you've got in on a deal and you were like, man, I made the right decision on this one? Well, I'll tell you what, my uh, history in investment real estate has been less than spectacular. So I accumulated a lot of investment real estate in the uh, 90s. I had a partner when I was doing all that. Matter of fact, there's a good example uh, Jim Baker and I sold some property to a fella who was developing lots down on Rough River Lake. And when we sold something he wanted sold, he didn't have any cash to pay us. So he gave us three lots down on Rough River. And we traded them, of course, for condos in Lexington and then traded those for, for houses in Louisville and commercial properties in Lexington and went on and on. Unfortunately, my partner and Jim and I are still great friends. His wife died. He got remarried, and his new wife said she was going to be his only partner. So he had to he had to fire me. So we had to split all that up and figure out what was going on. He was really managing those properties, and I was not. I wasn't a manager. So I mean, you know, things change in life. So yeah. had to do that. But and I took those properties and moved on. But we went through the downturn of two thousand eight, and of course, all the all the values just fell fell through the floor. A lot of vacancies, a lot of difficult times. And so I had an upside-down portfolio at that point, but it was interesting. In July of 2009, I had a meeting with my lawyer, my accountant, my wealth manager, and my wife. And I had 35 properties, and I put them on the table, and I said, you know, this one's not cash flowing, and this one's doing this and that, and this one's upside-down on, on financing and, and things of that nature. And I said, what should I do with them? And they looked at me, and they said, well, you bought them all. <laughs> you ought to get rid of them. So I took a hard look at the portfolio, did a lot of creative things to solve the problems, gave a few back to the banks because they weren't making any sense whatsoever. And, and by the way, that was back before 2008. There were advertisements on the radio and TV. We'll loan you 125% of your the value of your home. Well, that should have been a big red flag. Nobody was paying attention to that. They were doing negative amortization loans where the loan, the loan wasn't amortizing. You were, you were paying your regular payment, but the, the principal balance was increasing, not decreasing. And so, I mean, there were a lot of red flags back then, and, and I had one of those portfolios. So I told my wife, I said, I said Peggy, I'll take on this task. This is, probably the, this is probably the most creative and finest real estate I will ever do in my lifetime. And I said, I'll have everything gone by December 31st, 2012. And I sold 35, got rid of 35 properties and $3 million worth of debt. And I closed the last three on March 13th, 2013 and apologized to her. 
<laughs> so today, so I've moved from being an investor. I, I just wasn't the right guy. I didn't have the right partners, didn't have the right timing. But it's okay because I've had a great ride in, in this industry, in this profession, and continue to do that. I love to work and love to make a few bucks here and there. But I'm debt-free, and uh, debt-free feels pretty good. I love it. And uh, I, I, I don't know why, but I guess, you know, all three, all four of us in this room, except for me, but, you know, a lot of young professionals in Louisville leave. Yep. They go to the bigger cities, and, you know, all, all of these guys have flirted with that idea. As someone not from Louisville who came to Louisville, what made you fall in love with it, and why haven't you left? This is, well, of course, I, I married a local girl. So okay, that, well, then there we go. <laughs> that, that was good. We've had we've got a great run. We've been together 42 years. But, no, this is a very easy town to live in. It's it's very at ease. It's, a, it's an extremely southern population in a very northern location. It's, it's easy going. It's not a push, uh, except on the interstates. They're, they push They pr- push pretty hard about 7.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I try not to come in until 9.30. <laughs> but, no, it's just a great, it's a great place to live. We own a small farm out in, the, in Oldham County, the next county out. Uh, just, just love the place. I love the garden. I think the climate's good in this, in this part of the country. But the people are, are pretty at ease. It's a it's a comfortable place to live. I know a lot of people that live in New York and Chicago and L.A. L.A. is frightening. Mm-hmm. We've been we've been around and Peggy and I have traveled everywhere because on our own and selling CBD and doing things over the years. And I can't I can't pick a better spot than this. We have a place in Costa Rica that we've had for for twenty years. We love to go down there, but we would never live there. I mean, it's a great place. People are wonderful, but yeah, you're not close to family. You're not. You're not close to the best medicine in the world, which is right here as you get older. So it's just it's just really an easy place to live. Yeah. We, we like it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what Dylan was talking about earlier is after school, I went down to Nashville. My brother lived in Nashville, and, like, you know, I got to go visit him while I was still in college. And I'm like, man, this place is just awesome, right? I want to be down here. So went down there and got a sales job. And, you know, I, I you know, lived the life. And, you know, they have all the nightlife and all the restaurants and all the music eventually kind of gets old. And I'm like, I'm not near all my rest of my family. I feel like I have better roots in Louisville and ended up coming back to Louisville and, and really kind of falling in love with it and saying, this is kind of where I want to, you know, make my, make my start and make my career. Now, Louisville obviously has had some problems recently. The downtown's not doing great. And you kind of touched on it earlier, even goes back to the busing. What happened? You know, what was that back in the sixties? I think my mom was bust mid sixties. Yeah. And so, you know, Louisville has, shot itself in the foot multiple times. You know, how do you see Louisville's downtown and just Louisville development as a whole? Where do you see it going? Well, Louisville's uh, pretty unique, and Louisville's always been a nice convention town. And they've built a lot of, they were they were negative on hotel rooms for a long time. They've built a lot of hotel rooms to to help that. They, they've, they, I think that, you know, they've been proactive to try to make downtown safer. You don't hear as many incidents of people getting getting mugged on the street as you do in Brooklyn, so it's it's probably good from that perspective. But the thing that Louisville's got going for it is Louisville is Maine and Maine as far as geography. Not only did we bring UPS here in their national international air hub, which has been a boon. I mean that that created created all the logistics push, <clears throat> but we have. I-65 going north and south, and we got I-64 going east and west, and I-71 going up to Cincinnati. And uh, you can get to about, I think, about two-thirds of the population in the United States within one day, trucking or driving or otherwise. So this is a, this, Indianapolis, um, Cincinnati, I'm not even sure I would include Nashville, but those three cities are, are really in the catbird seat as far as being the logistically the transportation hub for the for a lot of the country a lot of the population here but again when you go to Cincinnati and you go to Indianapolis it has a totally different feel to it than it does here in Louisville Louisville's very very southern in in attitude and and population it's a much easier place to live than it is down there and by the way the apartment rents here are about half what they are in Nashville oh yeah mm-hmm. oh yeah I <laughs> can about a quarter that. yeah <laughs> about a quarter of New York and LA right, right. <laughs> yeah it's crazy stuff a friend of mine showed me he lived in Palo Alto and worked in Silicon Valley back in this in the 80s 
And he said they, they sold somebody's little little bungalow house out there the other day for $4.1 million. Jeez. And so it's crazy. The first time I ever saw the the per square footage rates on sales and stuff in Palo Alto, they were about $1,000 a foot. And I said, woo, that must be California prices. I don't know. So. I love hearing stories of people from California and New York moving to Louisville. <laughs> we have a, a close friend. He's really big in the film industry here, but he um, you know, was in L.A. and New York doing film for most of his life. The pandemic happened. His girlfriend was from Louisville. They're married, have a kid, and he's really big in the film industry. But he was able to sell his, I think it was like 900 square foot condo in L.A. in a high rise and they were able to come to Louisville, buy a house that's like 5,000 square feet in old Louisville with an apartment below it, completely redone, brand new, and barely spent like a quarter of what he sold his 900 square feet for. Yeah. And I, a, there's I just... A, there's, there's this great opportunity here. Yeah. And this, it is very inexpensive to live here compared to a lot of places around the country. And I think if, if you're working remote, why not live in Louisville? Especially if you're working remote for a New York or LA company. Yeah. I mean, you're triple your income just by moving here with the same because it's so much cheaper to live and everything's online yeah it's all it's all there you don't have to go anywhere anymore you can yeah. see you can open your computer and see any piece of property in any place in the world yeah right. it's right there in front of you, you probably got a bit better view than if you were standing in front of it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you're pretty well traveled what are some of your spots besides costa rica that you really like you know i well i, I went to australia in 2016 oh wow one of the that's one of the happiest countries on earth. That's a plane it's, right over it's, there. It's Ed, it's a long way. It was seventeen hours so nonstop out of Dallas into into Sydney. Good lord! And uh, time change will get you. Don't oh, yeah. don't don't leave your cell phone on over there because it'll ring in the middle of the night. <laughs> but that's a great country. We said uh, Peggy and I spent five weeks over there in 2016. I, I want to go back badly, but we ran into two jerks, and the rest of the people were just really happy to be there. They do they do speed limits with 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 radar, and they vary them. They're all variable speed limits depending on what the traffic is, and everybody drives the same speed. I get on seventy one. Somebody goes by me at about ninety five miles an hour. It's a little dangerous, to say the least. So they're they're very happy people over there. That's a great great spot. Um, I had the I had a great opportunity when I was a youngster. My father was in uh, retailing and had a lot of contacts in Europe. So what I got as a graduation present from high school was a round-trip ticket to Frankfurt, Germany, and a family to live with over there and work. I'd had about three years of German in, in high school and went over there and lived with a German family, worked in, the, worked in their business, traveled all over the, the European continent and, and did that. That was, that was a lot of fun. Um, did you get to I drive mean, the Audubon? No, nah, never got out there. I had a bicycle back then, oh, okay, not okay. even a car. But uh, yeah, it was a great opportunity. We love we love the West. You go West, they call it big sky country. And the reason is all of a sudden when you get out there, everything is just huge. Mm. Montana is just spectacular. Politics, maybe, maybe a little suspect. But <laughs> Montana's great. Uh, Wyoming's great. I mean, those those kind of places out there are amazing. Peggy and I drove out to Vegas when we were young, and I said we were going out through the Texas Panhandle. I said, I can't wait until we come over a hill and you see a train because you see it all. So you come over a hill, and all of a sudden you look down in the ravine, and there's a 150-car train. It looks like it's a little model train. You can see it from end to end. So it's a, it's a different mental perspective. We've had great trips in Arizona and Nevada. We, we like to go to Vegas, just hang out. We don't gamble. Believe it or not, we just eat and enjoy the the, the the lunacy that's out there. And then you then you rent a car and you go up into Utah and go to Zion National Park and and you go to you know we spent five days in St. George out there one time on the on the west end of the property west west end of the state and and five days in Mojave and went to Arches and we did that. I was a skier when I was younger. I've I've given that up, but uh, but there's there's just some. There's, there's, this is a beautiful, beautiful country. You don't have to go internationally to really enjoy some spectacular places. And you were traveling all this with your wife, you said? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Peggy and I. And when did you meet Peggy? Let's see. Uh, believe it or not, Peggy went to work for me as my secretary when I was in the budget office at, in Jefferson County government in 1973. I got married in in December of 73 to somebody other than her. She got married in August of 74 to somebody other than me. 
And but and then I moved on to the county attorney's office. She went through some various places, but neither of those marriages worked very well. I did have a son out of mine. She did not have any children, and I'm glad I had the son. He's turned out to be well. When I got divorced from his mother, he was one. So Peggy and I had a lot of exposure to him. And then we had a we had a child in 1992. Sarah's 31 now. Uh, but we just sort of drifted back together when those marriages weren't working. And she she and I got together. She moved in with me in February 1981. We lived we lived unmarried for a long time. We'd both been married, but <clears throat> got married in front of the house that we owned in 1990 and had a child in 92. And uh, life is good. Yeah, I love it. that's awesome. And so she was with you through some of the different careers that you had done and, and the good and the bad times. I mean, having someone in your corner, obviously, has got to be a major, right? Because a lot of people get in there and they get that job that they're going to do for 40 years. But you seem the kind of the different kind of guy who likes to jump an opportunity. Not everyone can kind of take that. She's She's been in my camp all the way. She's She thinks I'm crazy at times, but she's she's held on in there. And she's she's a professional on her own. She she worked for the for the uh, for the county for a while, and then she went to work for PNC Bank, actually Citizens Fidelity Bank, and they became PNC Bank. She ran their call center, their information center. She managed fifty five people for them in the late eighties and early nineties, and then they moved the information center to Pittsburgh after PNC bought the bank here. And they offered her a job in Pittsburgh, and she came home one day and she said, "They're moving the." The call center to Pittsburgh, and they offered me the job to run it. Do you want to go? And I said, no way. <laughs> and that's where I was brought up. That's I was born in Pittsburgh, spent my first 14 years there, and, and then my dad and mom moved to Chicago, finished high school in Chicago, and then went off to college. No, I wasn't going back to Pittsburgh. And so she had all kinds of job offers uh, here in Louisville out of that, out of that uh, change. And she talked to a number of people, and she came home one day, and she said, uh, I don't want to do any of those. Can I retire? And I said, because our daughter was three years old, and I said, I think that'd be a wonderful thing to do. But she's been my she's been my soulmate and assisted me. She has great accounting skills and great management skills. She's got a little bit of a social work background, so yeah. she she talks people off the cliff. Me me on occasion. <laughs> you a Steelers fan by chance? Um, sort of. Actually, I'm a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. There that's, you go. See, and that's that's a losing battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, college wise, huh? What are you a fan of? College basketball, football? I went to I went to U of L, so I'm a I'm a Card- oh, okay. I'm a Cardinal fan. You'll find a U of L plate on the back of my old old town car. There you go. Love it doing that. But uh, yeah, I I was I actually I don't know if you guys are are old enough to have any knowledge of this, but the Pittsburgh Pirates played the New York Yankees and for the 1960 World Series. And Pittsburgh won, you know, two to one and three to one and stuff like that. And then the Yankees won fourteen to two and sixteen to two and things like that. So they got to the seventh game, and I was present at the seventh game. And the their their catcher hit a three run home run in the in the bottom of the ninth inning, I believe, to tie it up. And uh, then a fellow by the name of Bill Mazeroski hit a home run in the in the bottom of the tenth to win the World Series for the Pirates. And I, wow. I was in the seats. <laughs> That was a great time. That was a memory. That's that awesome. was a great time. That's but the Pirates awesome. haven't been worth a damn since. It's funny. I was just up there this weekend for the Pittsburgh Steelers game on Monday. We yeah. get in there on Sunday, and the Pirates play the Yankees on Sunday. We, right. we got there as soon as they were getting out of the stadium. That's yeah. a small world. That's funny. But yeah. another question we wanted to ask is, you know, maybe one in business and one personal kind of piece of advice, but if you could talk to your younger self, you know, what words of wisdom would you give them? Oh, you know, I, again, I go back, everybody I've talked to, uh, Sam and I have spent some time together. I mean, you know, every day's a school day. I mean, you've got to open your eyes up. You don't go to high school and college and graduate and do a job, and, and then you don't learn anymore because you'll totally stagnate. Uh, you got to learn something every day when you get up. you got to get up with the idea that, that this is an opportunity to 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 enhance your knowledge and your your mental status and your comfort level. So, I mean, that's just critical. The other thing is pay attention because there's a lot going on around you. A lot of people are get in, get in, that, in that focus mode and they don't pay attention to what's on their right and their left. Somebody said to me the other day that I'd, I'd gone to SEC and, and encouraged somebody else to go there, and they said, oh, you know, I'm bored with them you know, selling this property in Nebraska to somebody in Arkansas and things like that. That doesn't mean anything to me. And I said, 
don't pay attention to what they're selling. Pay attention to how they're selling it. Mm-hmm. You know, pick up that knowledge. So uh, if you get into if you get into residential real estate or commercial real estate or whatever it is, and and all you do is uh, is fill out the listing form and put it on the MLS and and go out and show it and and write a contract and sell it and go to a closing and collect a commission, you're not paying attention. Mm-hmm. You've got to you've got to do more than that. You've got to you've got to analyze what it's doing, and and again in the exchange groups, the first thing we focus on is not the property. The first thing we focus on is the ownership. There isn't anything there. There's no bad piece of real estate. Real estate is real estate is real estate. But the solution to the problem generally is the ownership, not the property. You know what's the owner willing to do? What's the owner need in order to get it squared away? So you got to look at the people. You got to. You got to really analyze what their needs are and address those. That's what gets the property sold, especially in difficult ones. And I, you know, if you if you gave me a job as a residential real estate selling four and five hundred thousand dollar homes, yeah, I'd make a good living, right, Sam? You made some, you made a few bucks selling that kind of stuff. So, so you know, that's that's something. But you'd have to you'd have to hold a gun to my head. I mean, it, it would make me crazy because it doesn't teach you anything. There isn't anything new. It's just it's just walking through the steps. So, you know, I like I like properties that are difficult, that are challenging, that have all kinds of issues, have ownership issues and and need entitlements and need zoning and need access. I've got one over in southern Indiana right now that we have to convince the Indiana Department of Transportation that they need to put in a new traffic signal in order to facilitate the the traffic flow in this particular area because the area is growing so fast. And we need that light desperately in order to develop a piece of property over there. So, so we've, en- we've engaged people that really understand it. We've engaged the county to, to get after the state. And we'll get to the finish line. But, you know, most, most realtors, commercial and residential, you know, they want to they sell and close the property in 90 days. That deal's going to take three years, maybe three and a half. I don't care. You know, it's just fun to work on. Mm-hmm. It's like you have two deal buckets. You have quick and clean, and then you have a huge headache, but huge profit. And then there's a third type you don't want to focus on, which is huge headache and no profit. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no question. But no, I enjoy the I enjoy the difficult ones. I enjoy the ones that have a lot of lot of issues to to resolve. Um, and the one thing I've been able to accumulate over my lifetime is is a lot of contacts. Mm-hmm. It's not what you know; it's who you know. And so, so when you need something done and you, you have a contact and you can pick up the phone and say, say, Harry, I've got this problem. Can you help me? You know, that's, that's, that's very important. We have a motto and again, we, we don't have as many contacts, but in terms of just how we go about building contacts, you know, it's very quickly to think when you're calling someone's like, why do I need to call this person? But we look at it as we need to collect as many dots so we have more to connect, and that's what a deal. That's how a deal happens. You know, someone with this, and you know, a guy with this. You you know them. They don't know each other, and now you're connecting them, and that's that's how a deal comes to no comes to happen. No but this has been a great conversation. We like to conclude our episodes with just, with just some quick questions. The first one being, if business meetings had walk up songs like baseball players coming out on a field, what would yours be? Ooh, I'm not sure I understand the question. Walk, so, you know, like when players enter the stadium, right. they, they play a song. Okay. What would your song be entering a business Like your meeting? theme song if you had one. Oh. This is where we're young and weird, Don. I we're, guess we're so, yeah. We're unconventional. <laughs> and I, just for example, I'm, if I was in, entering a meeting, I'd maybe play God's Gonna Cut You Down by Johnny Cash. Yeah, I would play a Jimmy Buffett song because be happy. There you mm. go. Boom. <laughs> I, like I love it. it. Yeah, he lived it. Yeah, I'm a big Jimmy Buffett fan. And then cuz uh, I love the I love the tropics, I love the Caribbean. He he embraced all that and he said his sister said the last things he said before he closed his eyes and was gone, he said, "Be happy. Be happy." I love it. RIP. So every day's a blessing, so uh, if you start off your day with a frown on your face, you're making a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. Great exactly. Next question is what book or movie if you don't read has had the biggest impact on your career or oh, life you're gonna have a hard time with this i don't read really and i don't go to movies well how do well, you do a well, lot of your learning because you said you're always trying to learn where do you do your learning if not through books or i, I learn from you and you and you 
So I engage people rather than print. And believe it or not, I still get a Courier Journal print and a Wall Street Journal print every day. Okay, I'll and, re- and rephrase it. What p- person has had the biggest impact on your life? Ooh. Um, well, obviously, obviously my wife. She's, she's opened my eyes to, to many, many things. That's a good. That's any a really good. any mentors of in real estate that you really looked up well, to? Well, yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, that it's funny because at the at the exchange meeting today, we had a gentleman by the name of Chris Dissinger there, and I said a few things about Chris, and Chris said a few things about what he's done, and and Chris came from a, a really a sort of a blue collar background, but was was smart enough to listen to others and learn and 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 be creative. But he's yeah he's one of the he's one of the smartest guys I've ever met and he 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 learned how to solve a lot of different problems and it's been been highly beneficial to him both in in money and satisfaction. He's twenty years younger than I am, but I I think we've spent a lot of time together and compared a lot of things. I mean he's he's certainly one of my favorite people, just because he's his his insights are are just amazing. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends and acquaintances in this town that I call on. I mean, if, if I need something or want to talk about something, I know somebody I can pick up the phone and talk to. Now I know you guys, so I can pick up the phone and call you and see what, see what the younger generation wants. There we I go. Love it. And I love that you, you know, were able to learn something from younger people. It's not all, not all the time that older people are giving younger people any, any thought or chance to step up to the plate. So I appreciate yeah. that. When I'm, and I made a mention this morning about Chris. I mean, he met, he met a name, he met a fellow by the name of Don Kessler. Don Kessler was one of the most creative real estate people that I'd ever met. And I started in Cree in 1987 and he was there and and Chris really hooked on to him and, and, and got a lot of knowledge from him. Unfortunately, Don died when he was 62, and that's been 20 years ago or more ago. But he was really a, he was really a great guy. And by the way, he said, do you all know what a demand note is? Demand note is where you walk into the bank and they know you and they trust you, and you sign a piece of paper and they give you $10,000 for 90 days on it's terms. Note so on no collateral, just huh. called a demand note. And so Don Kessler always said, if you want spring to come early, you get a $10,000 demand note that's due on April the 1st. And it's amazing how fast April the 1st comes. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. So he was, yeah, he did a lot of trading in his days. His son, Danny Kessler, uh, has been around Louisville for a long time and done a lot of, a lot of positive things. He's gone to Florida, building a lot of multifamily now. But the people that I've met through Cree, through the Kentucky Real Estate Exchangers, the national exchange groups, I mean, I love the creative real estate people. They, they, just, they just think outside the box. I find, a, I find a residential realtor, and they're pretty boring. It's, you know, they're almost like order takers. They might as well work in a restaurant or a, or, a, or a retail store or something like that. I mean, there's no creativity and that kind of stuff whatsoever. There's, there's just so much emotion involved in residential real estate. It's just... I couldn't I it, couldn't deal with it. It's just someone spending all of their money on a house they're going to live in for the next 30 years. They're not willing to get creative. It needs to be for sure. Otherwise, they're not going to do it. It's just, yeah. Commercial real estate, a lot more fun. It's just a lot better. Well, an investment real estate, whether yeah. it be residential or commercial, yeah. yes. uh, is a lot more fun because you're, you're looking at people that are you know, looking to create equity and make a profit and, and they're spending their money and it's fun. They're fun to work with. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then the last question we have is just, do you have any activity that you do to decompress after a long week? I do it all the time. Um, so when I turned my, my dad lived in 95, my mom lived in 98. I'm the baby. I'm 77. I have an 83 year old brother and 86 year old sister. So when I turned 60, I sort of looked at myself like everybody would and said, ooh, you're going to live a long time. You probably ought to take care of yourself. So I started the lifting kettlebells in 17 years ago with a trainer that, that I'm still with. So when I used to lift them three, three days a week, I now lift them two days because I don't come to Louisville as much as I used to. I used to come in every day. But that's, that's really been helpful to me. Plus, I love to get out. I mean, I love to garden. I have a huge vegetable garden. My wife is a master gardener, so we have incredible flower gardens. 
out on the farm. You know, you, you get up and do that. We have three cats and a dog that we love to take care of. Our kids are, are grown and gone. Fortunately, we have two great kids. And by the way, I told my kids something that was really amazing, and this wouldn't apply to investment real estate at all, but I said, if you never borrow any money, you're going to have a much better life. And so my daughter is, lives with her boyfriend. They've been together seven or eight years. He bought a house. She's not even on the mortgage, so she's, she's not accumulating any debt. He's accumulating some equity, but, but she doesn't owe anybody anything. Uh, my son uh, was, uh, my, my first wife was an only child, and my son was our only child. So uh, she, she died of, uh, of pancreatic cancer in, in 2020. Uh, but she had bought a house after we got divorced, and uh, in the Cherokee Triangle, she bought a bought a, a nice little house for seventy thousand dollars in the Cherokee Triangle, which is now worth about three fifty. And and he was the sole heir, and so he had been in Chicago for twenty years, lived with his girlfriend, who's a historic architect, and and so after she died, and and he dealt with all of the all of the medical issues on that, and then all the estate issues after the fact. They had a free and clear house in the Cherokee Triangle. So they looked at each other and said, I guess we're going to Louisville. Mm-hmm. And so they moved back here, and, and she continued, Carrie continued to work as a historic architect with a firm out of Chicago. And my son is an expert in high-end coffee equipment, which is, he's done for the last 20 years. So uh, he immediately got a job in Louisville, and they were delighted to have him. So uh, they're back now, and uh, they're debt-free. And, and they're both extremely good kids, no pressure. I guess they're like anybody else. I mean, life, life is, a, is a challenge at times and got to do things, but, but they're, they're no trouble to us. They're not knocking on our doors. They're not crying to us, except my daughter calls up every once in a while. She's a vet tech and, and fosters a lot of animals. And every time she has to give away one of her cats, she's, she, she goes bonkers. So, so my wife talks her off the ledge. But we got two great kids, so it worked out very well. That's beautiful. Awesome. Thank you so much for the insights. This has been a great conversation. We'd love to have you on again. And just a lot to digest. you got a lot of knowledge, and I, I respect you taking the time coming to talk to us. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate the invitation and appreciate the opportunity to interface with you guys, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, Sam and I have been talking for a while, and we're going to continue to do that. And, and if I can ever help you guys in any way. You know, what do they say? Oh, I know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy. Yeah. There you yeah. go. We'll get it done. You're <laughs> a guy who knows a guy. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Don.